So the name of the talk is Surrendering to Impermanence, and which came from a little dialogue we had last week with some questions about impermanence and what does it mean to open to impermanence or be uh, in harmony with impermanence or surrender to impermanence. So of course, when I thought about this, which I really contemplated this week, thank you for closing that. Um, uh, the first thing I did was look up the word surrender to see what does that mean, and it comes from the Latin, and, it, and the sur means above or beyond, and render, which is rhetoric, I can't pronounce that quite right, but means to give back. So it's a, it's, it's a big giving back, or um, um, handing over was the other word, that one, 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 when one surrenders in this way, what it really meant was to fully hand over whatever what, what one was holding onto. And that's a beautiful understanding of the word, what it means to surrender, which is used very um, uh, pan-traditionally in spiritual language, that part of what it means, or part of the skill that one learns is how to surrender to the truth, or to the dharma, or to reality, or to impermanence. And so I also looked up impermanence, given I was going to talk about it tonight, so I could be accurate about what that means, and it impermanent um, uh, means not permanent, right? And permanent means that something remains steady or even or always till the end, right? And so, of course, the opposite of being permanent is it's temporary or it's transitory or it's momentary or it's ephemeral. And in Buddhism, the word that's used, that's translated generally as impermanence, is anicca. And it's a very, very important teaching of the Buddhas. He said, one who understands impermanence will understand the Dharma. And by understanding, that word is a, is a metaphor for wakes up to impermanence and the truth of impermanence. And so the word anicca in Buddhism, uh, it, it, one of the definitions from the Pali is all conditioned existence without exception is transient, evanescent, and inconstant. All, all conditioned experience, all conditioned existence, meaning body, heart, mind. The whole thing is impermanent. There's nothing permanent here. And it doesn't mean that's a bad thing or there's anything wrong with that. It's just pointing at oh, what is the truth? What is the nature of reality? What did the Buddha see that freed him? Right? That freed him to be what was called the Buddha, an awakened one. And so Anicca is also talked about in Buddhism as all temporal things, whether material or mental, 
And of course, in Buddhism, when, you, when they say mental, they mean emotional also. Chitta, the word in Pali, heart, heart and mind, it, you could translate it e- either way. Chitta means heart, chitta means mind. Because at that, in that era, they were one thing. There wasn't a mind up here. It was just heart and mind, right? And so all temporal things, whether um, material or mental, are compounded objects in a continuous change of condition, subject to decline and to end, right? So anicca, often translated as impermanent or impermanence, as change, as evanescence, which isn't the word I use a lot, but I like the word. It's got a very uh, sensual aliveness to it. It's evanescent, right? And then they also, people use flu- fluid, transient, fleeting. Um, uh, the Venerable uh, Tanisero, he uses the word inconstant. And he's, he's a good translator in general, so a lot of people like that word for Nietzsche. It just means things are not constant. Inconstant means not constant. <clears throat> and I was hoping to point you a little bit tonight at the impermanence in your meditation itself. Right? Anybody notice that things don't stay the same? That even if you're mindful of the breath, which is being mindful of one thing, even that's changing the whole time. And it's different every moment. And actually, the more intimate we get with it, the closer we get with it, the more pronounced becomes the impermanence of each moment of it. Every moment is changing. And so on that level in Buddhism, it's a very important concept, impermanence, because we want to stay present and see what's actually here, because everything's just arising and vanishing, arising and appearing for a moment or a while, and then changing. And that's part of the nature of human reality, and maybe the nature of all sentient reality. And maybe, and I'm just expanding this a little bit, the nature to all living reality is everything's alive and changing. <clears throat> and so I was thinking about where the question came from last week, you know, a totally valid question and concern about impermanence. And, and Nietzsche is disconcerting that nothing stays the same. Because we, I believe, as human beings, also as animals, we're looking for something solid, something stable, something consistent, something we can count on, something that supports our sense of safety and being, in simplest terms, okay. You know, like we're here and, okay, now we know this is it. Now we can deal with whatever this is. And especially talking to people today, I see one of the things about impermanence is it comes in conflict with our imagined experience of what is supposed to be permanent or what should be permanent, or what we want to be permanent, or consistent, or unchanging. 
And so I thought of all kinds of questions about uh, what it means to inquire into the the whole question of impermanence, which is, what does one, and of course you can do this on your own here as I say them, what, what do you want to be permanent, right? Because we all have some kind of idea, whether it's conscious or unconscious, that we want certain things to be, imper- to be permanent. Like we want the best parts of ourselves to be permanent. Or maybe if we're smart, we want our intelligence to be permanent. Or if we have good hearts, we want our hearts to be permanent. Or if we have a good job, we want that to be permanent. Or if we have a good relationship, we want that to be permanent. Or good friends, we want those to be permanent. Or whatever it is. And and uh, why not? What, what does it mean to surrender to the fact that nothing is permanent is a question for us to live with and work with that becomes ongoing part of our practice. And as I thought, and also a friend of mine who I was taking a walk with this morning and talking to him about um, actually his difficulties uh, with impermanence, and, uh, and then I was telling him a little about this topic that I've been contemplating this week. You know, he said this, which I'd already thought of. He said, well, what are your alternatives, right? What, 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 or, or why not surrender, right? But what are your alternatives given everything isn't permanent? And so one thing that's helpful is to actually look at what's permanent here and what's not permanent here. What's permanent in your seat and what's not permanent. And then I wrote down a bunch of things like, because in my view, everything changes. And I've lived long enough to see everything change, including my size, like, I don't know if you all remember this, but I used to be really about this big. And then it changed. Then I was about this big. Then I was this big and this big. And, you know, and I got about this big, however big I am now. But actually, I'm a little smaller than I used to be because things keep changing. Right? It doesn't stay at one size. Or my shape has changed. You know, sometimes I've been thinner and sometimes fuller. And my skin has changed, and my hair has changed. It's leaving me now, you know. And it's I'm bereft. I liked my I had really good hair for, you know, a while, fifty years or something, and you know. But it it's it doesn't want to hang out with me anymore so much, and you know. But I also watch my emotional life change, my likes, my dislikes, my. Uh, what makes me happy at some point doesn't make me so happy anymore. And what makes me not happy now might not have made me happy a year ago or five years ago or ten years ago. You know, and then I've also watched where I've lived or where I've worked or where I've played change over my life. And it keeps changing. And, and so who we are changes every which way. 
and of course I've mentioned this more in the last few years, but right, I've had many different identities, and this is the key piece about what's impermanent. Even our identity is impermanent, and that's a hard one. That's that's actually a very difficult to surrender that our identity doesn't stay the same. Uh, at least for me, that's been a very tricky one. Um, and of course, I've had a lot of different roles, right? I did. I was a hippie, and I did radical political street theater in New York City. And then I became. I lived on a commune, and I became a musician. And I was a musician for many years. Had a performing space in my house, and then I was a therapist. Then I decided, oh, I should go to school. I wanted to go to school actually, and I went to. I went and got a BA and MA, and two years BA, two years of MA, and became a therapist and. Oh, that was good, and that was a whole a whole identity that I had. And then I got asked to teach, and I became a teacher, and I stopped being a formal therapist, and that became a whole identity. And I've had all kinds of different relationships, friendships, really close friendships, and good like family guys who were my my buddies, you know, and we were very close. And then, you know, colleagues where I've worked, both in therapy uh, and also in street theater and in music, and then as a teacher. And then, um, you know, in marriage, I've been married a few times, so I've been married more than once. And, you know, um, you know, they were all good, but change, things change. I mean, I'm still married to Pam, but, you know, it could change, who knows? You never know family changes, meaning, you know, uh, I had a daughter, so that really changed everything, but also the family I came from left, right? My parents have died, and different people in the family have died, and, and so it changed. And even the relationships with them change. With my brothers, who I've been pretty close to all my life, it still keeps changing. They're not static relationships. And then I had a very bad accident. I had a brain injury, and I lost everything for a while. So everything changed very quickly with a, with an accident, and that was not fun or good or great. But it wasn't horrible. It was. It was. I don't recommend it at all. But it was also. It was part of life, you know. Meaning shit happens, and so. Even, and the impermanence was so um, uh, I'm looking for the right word the impermanence was so sharp that because I'd lost my whole familiar identity because I lost my brain for a while and you know and I had a what I thought was a pretty good mind and brain, and that was gone. And so even my whole identity of who I thought I was and what I was and my status in places all changed, right? And we were talking today, and I was, I was talking with one of the people, because I've talked to a few people today about change and impermanence and surrendering to impermanence. And uh, the one thing that never came back from uh, after my accident was my smell. I, I can't really smell well. I can smell, oddly enough, smoke, like cigarettes or marijuana. Like 
if marijuana is happening, I'm going, oh, I smell something. What is that? And then people say, oh, it's pot. Can't you smell it? It's not refined my capacity to smell, but I have a very little. But a lot of things I don't, I'm not able to smell. I'm just gone. And so today when I was walking and talking with people, I'll tell you a little about what happened. And I saw my good friend, Frank Ostaseski, who many of you know, who's taught here many times, who had two strokes in the last three weeks or last month. And I've been in contact with him since the first stroke and seen him many times and on the phone with him. and. Uh, and, uh, you know, and it's hard because he's okay, but he's not who he was before because that changed. And that's hard for everybody. And it's hard because everybody's got their identity who it's me. And then all of a sudden me is not working in the way me used to work. And so me is not here in the same way anymore. And so Frank and I were, I visited him for a while in his house where he's staying right now, and then we walked for a while. And uh, he showed me excellent um, glasses. I said, oh, I should take your glasses and show them here. Because he, they, the glasses show what's got changed in his vision from the accident. Because that's the major physical I don't know if that's accurate, but it's one of the major physical components of what this stroke has done. And so the glasses, like if you put them on, they have they have um, uh, some kind of tape on both sides, so you can see through the middle, but you can't see through the side because that's what his vision is like now. He can see straight ahead. He can't see peripherally at all. And like I move my hand here, I can see it. He couldn't, he couldn't do that. He could see right here, maybe here, any further, and it goes blank. He said it's not even dark or black or a color or anything. It's just blank. And, that's, and maybe that will be recovered, maybe not. He doesn't know. And so we were talking about the difficulty of change because it happens and the difficulty so he was supposed to teach a retreat um, last week or a few days ago and um, and he couldn't because he can't travel at all right now but he was able to go online and and zoom in or, or Skype in and teach a little bit of the retreat which he was really happy because that's who he is but in fact, of course, I'm happy to say to him, well, that's not who you are. That's one of your great capacities. And he's a really good teacher and all that. But none of that is permanent, including being a teacher. It's, a, it's an identity. And it's one of the roles that he's really great at. And then I'm coming home from seeing Frank and I get a phone call from my brother. And Frank's about 68, maybe 66, I can't remember. And uh, I get a phone call from my oldest brother, who's 78. And he's having a really hard time and he wants some help from me. And, um, and he's very direct about that. And, uh, 
And what's happened is my brothers, who's been an artist his whole life and very creative, and very creative both with craft and with art, and uh, very good with um, uh, using tools to create things. And he was very great with um, um, mirrors and um, glass. He did a lot of melted glass sculpture. Very beautiful. And uh, if you want to look it up, it's Sidney Cash. He's, he's a good artist, Sidney. And, um, and, but he's losing some of his mechanical capacity because he's getting older. He's 78, and it's changing now. What he can hold and keep steady and cutting with the saw is what he was talking about. Because he lives in the upstate New York in the countryside, and he's, he's used to being able to do everything, and he can't do it. And he said, he said, that guy isn't here anymore who could do everything and do it safely. And so what we we're talking about is how to work with the changes skillfully and, he, and do what he can without endangering himself or anybody else. Because things change. And it's not personal, even though it feels personal. It's not his fault, which people often think they've done something wrong, and now, it's, now they can't function in the same way. And so this came up with the third person who I talked to, who was visiting my wife when I got home today. And she, uh, uh, I've known her almost as long as I've known my wife. My wife and her are very good friends. And, um, and, uh, and she's married and had kids. And something happened with her family. And, and the husband ended up, they, they ended up, splitting up and he left and he's it, it's not clear at all what the hell happened even to me and I'm pretty perceptive sometimes about people's conscious and unconscious actions but it was couldn't, I mean I've heard her story a number of times I heard it again today I still don't understand what happened with her situation and her husband who seemed to just leave after what she felt were like at least 20 years of good marriage and, you know, two kids and, you know, all this good stuff. And she, and she, and the thing that we got today that I saw in a, was, oh, she was blaming herself for the breakup, even though, as, as I hear it, I mean, and again, I've broken up. It's always two people no matter what, but to take it on that it's your fault is a total mistake because it's not anybody's fault. Who knows what happens in the hearts and minds of people when they're in their relationship. It's a hard thing to be in a relationship and to stay there. And, and but, but it was very clear she was blaming herself because of the impermanence of her marriage. She said, because she had, and she told me this day, she said, oh yeah, we had such a good family and good marriage, and I thought it was all really good, and we were fine, and it was going. And I just expected to live my life with him till I die, and that it, you know the kids would go, and they're good, and blah blah. And the, you know, one of the kids is in college now, and the second one's graduating high school, and and 
you know, but her fantasy about reality, which is a totally normal fantasy, is not happening. It's not permanent what we think is going to happen. And so she was blaming herself, and I was just working with her not to blame herself, that somehow she was a bad person and that's why it happened. And that just was not true. And actually, whenever we're, whenever the superego or the inner critic is judging us, it's not true. Even if we've made a mistake, the harshness and the attack of the inner critic is not helpful at all. And I, and you know, and she's and and we talked about well, who are you? If okay, this marriage ended for whatever reason, it's gone. Who are you now? She said, Oh yeah, that's the hard question. I don't know who I am, and that's hard to lose our identity. So part of what it means to surrender to impermanence is to come into harmony with the way things are. Harmony with the way things are. And it's one of the highlights of the process of letting go of our ideas and our beliefs and our wishes and our wants when they're not in harmony with what's true. And to then see what happens if we not just take things for granted, but see that everything changes, that nothing is static, that human life is not static, that sentient life is not static. And it's really one of the beautiful teachings of the Buddha is all he's saying, oh, this is just the way it is. Can we come into alignment with it, into harmony with the way things are? Because then we don't have to fix it. Now, and I want to be careful here. It doesn't mean we don't do things, or we don't respond to things, or we don't take action, or we don't be very uh, willful at times. It doesn't mean that. But it's all based on seeing the truth that we're not in control of things. And that things happen and will happen no matter what we do also on their own because of various causes and conditions. Suzuki Roshi said it this way, which I always have. He said, when he discovered, when he discovered no moment could be repeated, he was enlightened. When he discovered no moment could be repeated, he was enlightened. And that's, that's a beautiful and deep teaching from Suzuki Roshi, who was very human, very human, and, and was married and, and you know, loved people and was very involved and involved in the world and created Zen Center and, and, and uh, you know, was, was just almost normal. Except he knew something, he knew some truth about impermanence, that no moment can actually be repeated. Even, even when we get the same soda that we really wanted, 
I had kombucha, is that what it's called? I had kombucha for the first time yesterday. That was good. I, I like that, whatever the hell it is. I like it. It's like, oh, I want that again. And now, I, and maybe I'll go get it again. It still won't be the same because every moment is actually different. The person who will be drinking it next time is not the person who never drank kombucha before, right? Because that person is gone. So coming into harmony with the way things are, it's really about, uh, and this is what meditation teaches us, is to come into harmony with this moment, the aliveness that's here, and the immediacy of being here. And it's really a doorway to the classic understanding of the mystical. Really, that everything is one. It's all right here. All of reality is right here in this moment. And then this moment. And this moment. Right? Rumi, the great poet, teacher, uh, he said, leave the circle of time and join the circle of love. Leave the circle of time. Tick, tick, tick and join the circle of love. So you step out of time. And then there's a certain magic that appears, and it's one reason why it can be beautiful to surrender to impermanence, because everything's just appearing and disappearing on its own. Every moment is here, right? You all know this. You all watch that whole meditation is gone, right? Just came and it went. And it came and it went. And again, I've been here like 27 years and it keeps coming and going at San Francisco Insight. <laughs> and I've had some really good meditations and wanted them to stay and they don't. And I've had some really bad meditations and I'm wanting them to go away and happily they've gone away. <laughs> but they've come back also sometimes, some version. Right. This is from one of my teachers. This is from Hamid Ali, who actually I'm going, I'm going tomorrow to a teacher retreat at Spirit Rock and Hamid's going to lead the retreat, which I'm really excited about and happy about. Um, brings my worlds together. Um, Hamid said, as we realize that the form of the universe is in constant change, that the form of the universe is in constant change, one of the main insights of all spiritual work arises. We understand that holding on to things, not wanting things to change, is a major source of our suffering. From the perspective of totality, of seeing the big picture, change is neither bad nor good. From the perspective of our separate individual entityhood, we consider certain changes good and other ones are bad. We call some of them death and some of them life, some of them pleasure, some of them pain. This perspective necessarily and always involves suffering because it ignores the truth of the constant transformation of the totality of things. 
that we're part of a weave of reality that is constantly morphing, right? And it, so there's a what he's doing here, Hamid, is bringing together duality and non-duality, right? There's the truth of duality. It's not a bad thing. I'm sitting here. I'm having my sensations, my thoughts, my feelings, right? And that's true. And you're all having your experience, your thoughts, feelings, liking, not liking, uh, relaxed or not relaxed, whatever it is, you're having your experience. And yet, we're all part of something bigger that's more like a weave of reality arising and passing together. We're not usually in touch with the weave or the oneness or the non-duality that also we are, we are the fabric of that non-duality. And it's, it's beautiful to just open a little bit to the bigger picture of the dual and the non-dual. Because oneness doesn't stay the same moment by moment. That's, it's, it also changes. There's one fabric of reality that we're all part of. And that fabric is changing in every moment. None of it is static. It's not a thing. It's no thing or nothing. But it's not that there's no anything there. But it's just moments of reality changing, shifting, morphing, more like the ocean, like we we're part of the ocean. And we may be a seaweed, but we're a seaweed in the ocean. It's actually not a bad image for the dual and the non-dual together. I like that. This is how uh, uh, a Sufi teacher, Ibn Arabi, put it. He called creation the breath of the merciful. Creation is the breath of the merciful. The peering and disappearing of the inhale and the exhale of the merciful. Right? You are constant, you are born constantly. Right? Everything is arising and passing as part of the breath of the merciful. And merciful is, of course, an archetypal word for God or the divine or the sublime. Mm. So there's a dynamic morphing that's here personally and universally at the same time, a constant change. And the other place that, of course, people see this, or at least have a lot of understanding, is the molecules, right? Like all your molecules are moving all the time, right? All the molecules that make up anything are actually moving. Even though this looks solid, the molecules are not solid. They're alive. Right? And we're just like this. And that's something that points to the beauty of the impermanent nature of reality. It's alive. It's magical is one way that I like to say it. 
And of course, it's very, uh, it can be very beautiful, but it can be very uncomfortable also. Another, another image that helps is like when you watch TV or a movie, you know you're not seeing anything static, right? It looks like people are there in the movie. These people are arguing or kissing or whatever they're doing in the movie. But actually it's just pixels, right? It's pixelated reality that looks like it's solid. We may also be actually be like that. And then it points to the in Buddhism. This is why. So so here's a, just a little aside, but it's related to Nietzsche. And Nietzsche is often talked about as one of the three truths in Buddhism. Uh, an, uh, anicca dukkha anatta. Anicca dukkha anatta. The three three truths, which are uh, impermanence that there is impermanence, there is suffering, and there is not a solid self. There is not a solid self. And that's the hardest thing for most of us to get. Because I'm here, right? I mean, this is me. I'm Eugene, right? But to start to see that Eugene is a pixelated reality that comes from causes and conditions and is not static, starts to point you at what's called in Buddhism the not-self reality. That the Buddha said there is self and then there's not-self, anatta, uh, anatta. And this is from Joko Beck, who is a beautiful Zen teacher. She said, and of course, I am not. But the last thing I want to know is that I am not. Right. The last thing I want to know is I am not. I am, in, and then she goes on. She says, "I am in permanence itself, in a rapidly changing human form that appears solid. I fear to see what I am, an ever-changing energy field. So good practice is about fear." She's radical. She said, good practice is about fear. Fear takes the form of constant thinking, speculating, analyzing, fantasizing. With all that activity, we create a cloud cover to keep ourselves safe in make-believe practice. True practice is not safe. It's not safe. It's anything but safe. But we don't like that, so we obsess with our we obsess with our feverish efforts to achieve our version of the personal dream. Such obs, uh, obs, such obsessive practice is itself another cloud between ourself and reality. The only thing that matters is seeing with an impersonal searchlight, seeing things as they are. When the personal behavior relaxes, she says, drops away, why do we have to call it anything? We just live it our lives. We just live our lives. And when we die, we just die. No problem anywhere. That's her version. I would change it a little. But it's still, it's powerful and it's good to hear for all of us because we all go, well, what if she's right about all of this? Thank you.
little quotes that I like to relate with impermanence. One is from William Blake, who wrote, She who binds herself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But she who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. I mean, that's like the best dharma ever. And it's so beautiful. It's, it's about coming into harmony with the way things are. We're not trying to hold on to the joy or bind oneself to the joy because it destroys the aliveness itself, is what he says. But she who kisses the joy as it flies means appreciates this moment, which is magical that we're alive at all, right? Lives in eternity sunrise. Wait, in my language, wakes up. <clears throat> and then the last quote, which is from the Dhammapada, from the Buddha. He said, when those who are wise dwell in contemplation on the transient nature of body, heart, mind, and of all conditioned existence, they experience joy and delight seen through to the inherently secure. And the inherently secure is not permanent. I, I added that loud piece. That's not from the Buddha. So I'm going to stop here, and we've got a few minutes for any thoughts, feelings, questions, responses, agreements, disagreements about what I've said. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.